Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How would you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset, and that's when you can reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. Look, it's summertime. Transfer window is coming up. It's gonna get crazy. So if you ever just wanna, again, take a step back and relax, read the transfer rounds, read the gossip rumors, grab a Coors Light. It'll be perfect companion for all those transfer merry-go-rounds. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. The mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when the beer is cold. That way you always know when it's time to chill. When you need to hit reset, just open a Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Now that it's finally hot in Minnesota, I'm going to be looking for an easy beer to drink, and Coors Light is perfect for that. It's lagered, it's cold filtered, and it's cold packaged. It's, again, made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies perfect for a moment to unwind and so when you want to hit reset reach for the beer that's made to chill get coors light in the new look delivered straight to your door with drizzly or instacart coors brewing company golden colorado and as always celebrate all right so you're listening to this podcast right now london is blue and guess what we host our podcast on anchor.fm that's right if you're looking to host your own podcast this is the easiest free way to get started. This got a content creation tool allows you to record and the podcast right from a phone. That's right. Don't even need a computer, but you can do it there too. They'll also help you distribute it, which is probably the most challenging part. You don't want to have to mess with that. They got you covered. You can get it right on a Spotify and Apple podcast as well as any other place podcasts are found. And you know what? You can monetize it too. Make a little cash for sharing your great content with the world. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one individual place. So you know what? Head over to your app store, download the Anchor app, or head to anchor.fm to get started if you're ready to launch your podcast and make it happen. This is Cesar Pliqueta. This is William. This is Ali Riley. Hi, this is Ruben Loftus-Cheek, and you're listening to the London is Blue podcast. Welcome back, Chelsea fans, to another episode of the London is Blue podcast, your home for all things Chelsea FC. Dan, Mike, Nick, and myself cover all of Chelsea's latest matches, team news, and even throw you some exclusive interviews. Thank you for being an awesome listener, and with no further delay, let's jump right in. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode of the London is Blue podcast. That's right, Brandon off today, but you got Dan here along with Nick and Mike. International breaks can be a little bit of a bummer, depending upon what team you're rooting for. Uh, (laughs) However, Nick, uh, I think we're very excited for a special episode that we're doing with another Chelsea great, Chelsea legend, and I'd love for you to welcome him on. Absolutely. Uh, Welcome, Pat Nevin. You're you're a uh, a Chelsea legend. We're, we had the pleasure to meet you um, last April when we were at the uh, the Copthorne lobby um, at Sanford Bridge. Uh, welcome to the show. Great to be here, and it was uh, good meeting you over there at the time, or down there in London at the time. I'm actually in Scotland today. Um, I'm generally in a different city every single day, uh, which is true <laughs> all of this week. Um, so yes, I, but I, wildly, I do remember meeting you there at the Copthorne. Um, you met quite a few interesting people that day, as I remember. Uh, a few other Chelsea sort of famous ex-players were up there, and uh, that's something to know in the know for anybody listening to this uh, podcast. 
get up to that Copthorne Hotel just before the games. You meet some interesting people. Yeah, we got to meet Bobby Tambling as well and get a quick photo with him. Who I mean, he's as generous as they come. So yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a sneaky little uh, uh, positive for those who aren't the know. Uh, that's really great. Uh, Pat, your your resume kind of speaks for itself. We were just kind of chatting before we jumped on about maybe the uh, the numbers and things like that. But for those who don't know, around 245 appearances, around 45 goals, and apparently an assist every other game. Uh, not too bad, huh? Um, well, at the time, I didn't really count the goals. I wasn't really interested in the goals. Um, I was interested in the assists more than the goals, but they didn't record them in those days. Um, and you really only think about these things now. Stats were, were brought in oddly into football much more, uh, became bigger after people in the UK became interested in the NFL and the gridiron mm. game because the stats were so good there that British football started copying that. So it went over the States and then came back over here with the stats. Before that, you just tried to win the game. You didn't worry about anything else. <laughs> so I was going to say, so the uh, you really, it's uh, all of us Americans are to blame for the obsession with stats in modern football in the UK. Worryingly, blame's not the right word. I quite like them. Um, I quite like all the stats. Um, but also, the imp- imperative about stats, one of the things I studied when bef- I was doing a de- degree before I came to Chelsea, and uh, one of the things I studied was stats, um, along with a bit of economics, a bit of law. And so I, I'm very, very keen on the numbers. So I'd like to know how they work and, and also, more importantly, how they are misused because they're easily mm. misused in the game. Yes. And uh, can I give you a wee stat, everyone? Any Chelsea fans out here? I, I found this stat recently and I'm going to check you all. I mean, and you might know the answer to this uh, if you've read my column at Chelsea and the Chelsea website. However, I'm going to ask anyway. There's a thing called through balls, you know, pass ball from midfield or deep. It goes beyond the defence and your attacker gets it. Do you know which player in English Premier League's football has made the most passes of those through balls this season? And he has I, made them by a factor of three. I, I have read this and it's David Luiz. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone not read that article because the follow-up question is a cracker. Do you know who is number two in the list? Now, if you've read the article, ignore it. But um, who is the second player that's made the most through balls I'll tell you it's not David Silva it's not Kevin De Bruyne um, could you guess who it is if you don't already know we will how about we throw that to our audience we'll do a, a quick social media question at London Blue Pod uh, respond back if you know who is number two on the list on the okay. league not just Chelsea the league. The league. so that's my favorite stat of the current time it's not David Luiz's that's a great stat for David but it's who's number two is the shocker. <laughs> Speaking of stats, uh, Pat, how do you, how, you know, I, I'm a fan of hockey as well. Um, would you be a proponent of um, tracking the, the second assist uh, as hockey does? That's a brilliant thing you've asked me there because I'm one of the few who, who makes quite a big thing about it over here in the UK in the media um, because I there was a couple of players that I've watched and I thought the second assist was sometimes the most important one because Agreed. he was the one that, you know, understood the play, you know, dragged everyone one way. Um, there was a one player particularly played for Arsenal, actually, a while back, Santi Cathorla, mm-hmm. and his second assists were absolutely astonishing. And, you know, the assist was almost a simple pass, whereas his was a genius. And uh, that's something, something I think we should maybe look at a little bit closer. You know, when it's done with intelligence, it's a great thing. 
problem is some of the second assists are just a big lump up the park <laughs> right right yeah so maybe it doesn't work as well as it does in the hockey <laughs> good point well that was i mean ngolo kante kind of earlier in the season pat uh, had a couple of those second assists and and we were kind of wondering decrying why that wasn't more of a made more of a big deal because he was the one dragging defenders on one of these brilliant runs that he made and then distributing the ball to someone who else who could make the simple pass well i can tell you the reasons why that won't get highlighted and it's nothing got to do with statistics or people not noticing it's got to do with the fact that so many people uh, particularly in the media but you know all over said it was a disgrace and golo Kante isn't playing as a sitting midfielder anymore Jorginho's playing there he's been played up a little bit further and it doesn't suit him it's terrible it's awful these people haven't been watching the Chelsea games. N'Golo has been brilliant in that position. And an actual, this is this sounds like sacrilege, right? This really sounds like sacrilege. I think I now prefer him in that more forward position. And I know he's one of the best, if not the best in the world, at that deep line midfielder. Um, but a little bit pushed forward. He's co- he scored a couple of goals, not enough, but certainly a couple of goals, more than uh, Kovacic and Jorginho, of course. Um, and he's created a few goals as well. And I think he's grown at that position. The most important thing is he wins the ball the same as he does deep, except he wins it higher up the pitch. You've got less distance to get the, get to the, the goal. To be honest, it may take a year, but I wouldn't be surprised long-term France start playing a little bit further up the field because I think he's brilliant. In that position. I'm enjoying watching him. Mm-hmm. So I really like that we, you know, dovetailed or de- you know deviated into this conversation around statistics in the game so is there a stat you know that you feel like is grossly over like incorrectly used by fans or kind of within punditry that you can point to and maybe would want to clarify how it should be maybe more appropriately used by by supporters to kind of understand what's actually happening on the pitch? Um, well, I'm going to give you two, and it's quite good maths, this one. Sadly, you should talk to a footballer who's going to give you maths and arithmetic discussions. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll go there. Um, one of the ones, actually, before you come on, I was sadly, just for pure self-torture reasons, looking up <laughs> some of the, 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 the statistics involved in Scotland at the moment. Uh, uh, the national oh, team Kazakhstan, right? So they're not good. And they looked at the two managers and a piece on the BBC website saying they were comparing the goals per game with the current manager and the previous manager and the current points per game with the current manager and the previous manager. They make no sense at all because you must be able to give a grading for the standard of opponent you're playing against. Now, over a season, that sort of statistic actually works okay, but it doesn't give you any clue to the relevant irrelevant relevant abilities of each manager if you do not code into it. So if ex-manager had played six games all against Brazil, Germany, the Netherlands, you know, it might be tough. Well, the other guy might play San Marino, Liechtenstein. I was going to say the USA there, but I, I, I won't say that. I'm being nice. Oh, come on. <laughs> You're killing me, Pat. Come on. Uh, hey, the only reason why I've got the bravery to say that, I don't know if you know this story. Um, I have played against the USA. Um, once uh, for Scotland. And uh, if you look up the records, you will see I played, uh, it was 1 0. Uh, it was played in Chicago. I scored the winning goal. Um, and that's not the most impressive thing about that game. Do you know what the most impressive thing is? Right, I'm going to tell you anyway. 
that that goal was actually used in a movie, and it's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> so that's my claim to fame. And which movie was it used in? Right. Well, you know Mike Myers, um, who did Wayne's World, and yes. after that, The Awesome Pearls. Mm-hmm. Well, in the middle of that, he did a kind of an, an art house comedy called So I Married an Axe Murderer. Yeah. And there's a scene in that where he's shouting at his son, uh, telling he'd to get out of the way because he had a Scottish accent, Canadian. Um, and they celebrate a goal. And they show you and tell the, the kind of start of the goal going up. And yes, it was me that scored that goal. <laughs> the highlight of my career, being in a Mike Myers movie. <laughs> they never paid me for it. <laughs> well, now we have an official complaint to the Mike Myers Foundation. I, I like Mike Myers. Well, the Mike Myers movie maker, he's brilliant. Um, can I tell you the other qu- quick start? Just, I mean, this is going strange directions, but that's what I quite like. Um, the start about um, anybody out there listening to this, pen and paper, if you don't know how this works. Um, most people say about the size of soccer fields, you know, there's, if, say, Stamford Bridge is quite small, uh, so if it's 70 yards by, say, 100, and, I think it's 108, so, and then if you put another ground, say, you know, Aston Villa's is like much wider. It's 78 yards wide by 115. So it's something like seven yards wider by eight yards longer. So I'm going to ask you how many extra square yards is that? Does anyone know the answer? Oh, no. <laughs> seven yards wider by eight yards longer? I forgot to bring my pencils to this podcast today. So <laughs> yeah. scratch paper. You're supposed to say 56 square yards, right? Because it's seven yards longer and eight, eight, well, no. eight yards wider, right? It's well over a thousand square yards is the yeah. difference. And people don't know this. And that's one of the stats people, that's my favorite one where I say it's a very, very big pitch. And people say to me, oh, don't talk rubbish. It's only a couple of yards wider and a few yards longer. And they don't understand that's the, not how the maths work. <laughs> so one of the, probably the numbers that people most you know, you most regularly use, but potentially use incorrectly. I think like expected goals is probably the stat that most people are aware of or try to say that they're comfortable with. How do you think that is appropriately or inappropriately used? And do you feel like it's still something where people don't fully understand what they're talking about when they try to use that stat in punditry? I, I see the stat. It's not often used in punditry in the UK. It's used in the, the guy called Daniel Finkelstein, who writes for the Times of London, he uses that stat quite a lot in one of his pages. And it's a great page, by the way. And by the way, he is a Chelsea fan as well, which is good news. And it's a pure stats page, and it's a very good one, but it's more depth than most. Um, but that's the stat that I don't particularly like because it's purely historic. And most stats are, they have to be historic. But I'm not over convinced by the usefulness of them. Um, having said that, when you factor them into, I do a, a fantasy football thing with some, some friends and it's just the scores we get. And uh, when you put the expected goal scored instead of guessing yourself, it does quite a bit better than random. So it's not a bad start, but it's not in the It doesn't tell you anything phenomenal. <laughs> I'm, I'm convinced that stat was made up for the betting parlors, honestly. Like, I, I think that was, that's just one that, you know, if you knew relatively little about the, you know, the West Ham Cardiff match and you wanted to place a bet and you were trying to convince yourself that, you know, this was the right way to go, that that could be a pretty useful stat if you didn't know anything. But if you had watched the teams, I'm just not, I'm not convinced that's, that's where it's supposed to, 
to live. It's all historical. Now, all stats are based on historical data. Um, however, the data before that, um, you have to, you have to take other data on top of it. If you're betting on West Ham winning a game from those stats, but they haven't added in the fact that Arnautovic is injured, that you know half of the rest of the team are injured or playing terribly this week because of a, an international game, you have to factor everything in. So it's it's a tough gig to do that. But you know, you're talking to somebody who's who's more artistically minded than mathematically minded. So <laughs> it's an unusual route to go down, but I am, I am intrigued in it. It's just, I tend to, I, one of my jobs just now is I, as a co-commentator for uh, the BBC Radio 5 Live, um, is that I generally let this, the commentator do most of the statistics. And I give the kind of opinion sided with a little bit of knowledge, hopefully, and the odd stat if it's helpful. Uh, I think it's often the commentators are the best ones to go and spend a lot of time because my argument would be anyone can actually go and look up the stats. If you've got enough mathematical knowledge, you can go and look them up. That's not why they've got me on there talking there. They've got me because I used to play the game and should have some other insight on top of that. So <laughs> that's the reason why I kind of don't steer clear of them, but I'm very, very limited use of them when I'm broadcasting. So, Pat, I think we're going to start off um, the conversation around, our, you know, kind of assessment of, of the current state of the club, the current state of play in the Premier League and and the like there. Um, could you just give us an assessment of the season so far? And, you know, if you had to describe it in one word, um, <laughs> what would that word be? Expected. <laughs> it's, it's, it is what I expected. Um not necessarily in the way that I expected it. I thought we, and I, if you just have to look up the websites where I've, you know, particularly the BBC website, they ask all, all of us pundits and the BBC website to have a guess at what we think the top four would be. And I'm brutally honest every year. Uh, I didn't think Chelsea would quite make the top, top four this year. With a new manager, um, complete change of style. I just thought, no, that's too much to ask because the amount of money that, City are spending, the fact that Liverpool are in a good moment, as they say in the game now, um, expected Arsenal to come back some way as well and definitely expected United to do a lot better, and they now are though not under the circumstances I expected. I was I thought, Chelsea, you know, banging on fifth, sixth, if really lucky might sneak fourth, and that's what I expected. Now, after the start we had I was beginning to feel a little bit foolish about that because we had such a great start, you know, in that long run that, you know, Sari Ball seemed to look really nice and pleasing on the eye. The thing is, people sussed it after a wee bit of time um, and other things came into play and it's kind of had its ups and downs. But before the season, no, I thought this would be transitional this year. And if we got into the odd final here or there, and managed to scrape top four or just missed it, that would be, yeah, par for the course. That's what I expected it to be. Um, It's just that I expected it to start poor and get better. Actually, it started really good, and then it's wavered a bit, you know. So, you know, one of the things that obviously has been a point of contention is the idea of the footballing philosophy or the my idea of football that Sari talks about attempting to instill or download into the players you know what's your assessment on how well that has or hasn't worked and do you think that there are is it is it there are missing pieces that prevent it from being executed appropriately or is it just maybe a type of a style that in the 
Premier League as it stands today is going to have a hard time being successful? Um, it's never one thing. We all want it to be one thing and say, oh, it's him, he's playing in the wrong place, or we need another player there. And it's it's not like that. Football's much more blind than that. It's diff- different from that. So certainly, I compare it, there are probably, you know, who are the, the, the possession-based teams in England that play pure possession? Obviously, Manchester City. And they had to adapt completely when Pep came in. How long did it take? Well, that first season wasn't very good, was it? Um, however, look at them now. It takes a while to, A, as you say, bring in a, bring in the pre- personnel. Um, certainly, it takes a team, a team quite some time to work at it. There was a very famous time in Manchester City where everyone was hammering their goalkeeper just after Pep came in. Everyone was hammering John Stones because he kept on getting caught in the ball. And we had the pundits and the TV shows over here, and they're all saying, oh, that's useless, that's hopeless, that's terrible, you'll never succeed that way. And I was this lone voice in the distance saying, no, you've got to keep on doing it. You must keep on doing it. The only way you get through this is to learn how to do it and learn how to do it at the coal phase. Um, A year and a half on, two years on, all those people who are giving Pep such abuse have, have conveniently forgot that they were telling him to play the long ball. <laughs> we all conveniently forgot it. It's amazing. But in the fact that I was this kind of lone voice standing in the BBC saying, I don't agree with you. I think every one of you are wrong. Um, no one seemed to have noticed that I said that. <laughs> but I continued to say it the whole way through it because I could see what Pep was trying to do. So what's that saying is, well, Saris is not like Pep's. It's not exactly the same as Pep's, but it's another possession-based type of game. And it doesn't happen overnight. It just doesn't. It's, it's really hard to get players to do that. There will be weaknesses within it as they try and build it. Um, if it is built the way he wants it built, and when it goes wrong, you'll notice that Sari almost always says the same phrase. It's, it's, it's funny. It's actually laughable. But he always says, it's the, the, the philosophy works, they're doing it okay, but they're not doing it quick enough. He always says they're not doing it quick enough. And I completely agree um, that the players on certain occasions have looked lackluster with the way they've passed it forward and moved it. You can't play Sari ball unless you play it quickly because if you play it slowly, it's too predictable. Sari knows that. And Sari tries to stop them doing that. However, I'm not sure I'm blaming the players either because you have to remember what kind of season it is. That all the same players are playing generally all the time. There will be one or two games where they, they look flat. You look at what's happened to Spurs this season. Everyone's had flat periods. Spurs are having a shocker at the moment. Are they one point in 12? And everyone was telling me they were going to get third or maybe top. <laughs> so they all seem to have these flat periods. number of reasons for it. Usually using the same players too long, too often. But particularly if those players went a long way in the World Cup, they are going to fall. They're going to falter at some point in the season. And I just look at it all around. You know, they look at Spurs as a good example. You know, Ericsson, what a fabulous player. He's been shocking the last two or three weeks. He's been useless. And that's not because he's a bad footballer. That's because, you know, it's, be- it's got to. You tell me another game where they you work for two years solid and don't have a break and generally play twice a week. It eventually gets you. And I don't care if you pay a million pound a week. Your body's human and it stops. And I think that's been our problem. Our downtimes 
have been the times when the players have looked tired. Yeah, you know, staying on the players, um, we're hoping to talk about uh, Eden Hazard for a minute. Um, clearly, he's having a fantastic uh, statistical season. 16 goals, 11 assists across all competitions. Um, in your point of view, is there anything uh, about the way he's changed his game this season that stands out uh, compared to previous campaigns? Um, well, we obviously have played in a very similar position uh, to Eden Hazard. Now, Give you an example of what when I played, if we ever played in a four-four-two, and I was a wide of a four, then I wouldn't be quite as productive as if I played in a four-three-three, because my starting position would always be 20, 30 yards further up the field. I got the ball 20, 30, 40 yards further up the field on average per game, and that makes it easy to create. And then you've got fewer people in front of you. Not not complicated stuff. There's just fewer people in front of you. You are actually in that system doing less work defensively because in a 4-3-3, you've got a guy behind you. So you look at Ed in this season, he's playing in a 4-3-3. He doesn't have to track back the way he had to in other systems. So him having a more productive season does not surprise me. It really doesn't surprise me. He's, he's probably as good, if not a better player now than he has been previously, but getting the ball and getting more of the ball in the right areas is a massive, massive difference. And very specifically, with not four people in front of you, that kind of helps when you're a dribbler, <laughs> if you bug your four guys in front of you. Uh, so that's another yeah. reason why you need to get the ball up there and get them fast. So, yeah, he's having a good season. I think part of the reason is that. But also, I let's be blunt about it, there have been games where he's just t- not turned up. He's not been there. He's been quiet. He's not gone past yeah. anyone. And when those games have happened, I just immediately think back to yeah, he was in that World Cup. Yeah, he got all the way just about the semi-finals. He got to, so he's not had a you know massive break either. And I think it shows now and again. The good thing with Eden, it's you know when it when he's having a quiet day, he's having a quiet day, and you just shrug your shoulders and bring Pedro on or William or Callum Hudson Odoi. Um, but when he's having a good day, basically no one can stop him if you get the ball in the right place. So I think he's he's having a really good season. Can I guess the next question? Yes. The next question I was going to guess is, is he going to stay? <laughs> you know, we, we uh, I think that's the question on everyone's minds. Um, you know, as a group, guys, collectively, to me, I, he's going to do what he needs to do for him. Uh, and I, I'm not focusing on that, you know, that I, I'm not worrying about it. But, you know, Nick, Dan, what are your thoughts? I mean, I, I think my my lean all, all year, Pat, has been that he's probably – gone if Real Madrid make a suitable offer for him um, and not say that he's not loyal uh, to Chelsea or anything like that. I just, you know, I think he, he might've run his race here, uh, but that's, that's just one idiot's opinion across the, <laughs> across the pond. What are you thinking? Um, it's a bit of a toss of a coin. I think it's a very personal thing with him as in he's such a laid back kind of guy. Um, when I played football, I played not to maximize the potential of the amount of medals I won or the amount of money I could make, or how famous I could become. I played it because I liked playing, and I loved playing. Um, and if I was in a place where I was enjoying it, you know, you couldn't get me out with a crow hammer. You know, you just couldn't move it, because I love the enjoyment of football. And going somewhere where you might not be as happy, it's that, that might be as important to him as it was to me. You know, and because he has that quite an unusual character. Now, when it was almost certain, and I'm sure you everyone knows by now, 
but it, Mourinho was going to get the job. So had Mourinho gone and been Real Madrid manager, it was an absolute certainty that Eden Hazard was going. And I know everyone thinks that Eden and Mourinho didn't get on. It was a part of that thing that was going on with uh, playing in a different position and defensively. Mourinho goes to Real Madrid, buys Eden. Eden just spends his time hanging about up front, 100%. That's just the way he'll play him. And I think there was an absolute stick on. Eden was saying all the right things when Mourinho's name was mentioned and Real Madrid's name was mentioned. I think Zidane getting the job makes it slightly less likely that Eden's going to go there. Uh, that might sound really strange, but you have to remember who Zidane is. Zidane is, was the greatest player in the world for a period of time. He expects the very, very best. Eden's brilliant, but he's not the very, very best. You know, Mbappe's the one you've got to go for. You've got to try and get Mbappe if you are Real Madrid. So he will be getting that job and he'll have been insisting that he gets Mbappe. And if you've got Mbappe, can you really afford Eden as well? I, I'm not sure they can. So I, I've got a funny feeling it's a toss-up between them two who goes to Real Madrid. And I know which ones are damn ones. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we don't often go into talking about the composition of Real Madrid's squad, but I think it's healthy in this moment. You know, I, I think ultimately, and I think Mbappe is a really good call because ultimately what they lost with Ronaldo is someone who can score goals at an obscene level. And even though Hazard is absolutely brilliant, you know, he goes through what I think we could all affectionately refer to as patches. And it's just... Maybe he, he you know doesn't necessarily fit the mold of the type of player with the length of career left that is really going to be worth a significant investment. I, I guess that would be kind of maybe summing it up appropriately. Yeah, that's exactly exactly my feelings. Um, and for if you're a Chelsea fan, and we all are, you know, it, it feels really painful thinking, oh, we could lose him to Madrid. And of course, it might still happen. Remember, PSG may not sell Mbappe. And think about the money that's going to cost. Have Madrid actually got that sort of money just now? Mm -hmm. um, I think Mbappe will end up at Madrid one day. I don't actually see him as a Barcelona-type player. So I, I suspect he'll end up at Madrid one day. It's just a question of whether it is this year or, you know, sometime soon. The, the downside of it is, you're right, all the things you said there are right. The downside is, if, if Mbappe says, no, 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 I'm going to stay another two years at PSG, um, then that makes Hazard's likely move bigger. Um, I, just, I, was, I was at the uh, PSG versus Manchester United game a few weeks ago in Paris. Uh, and what a stunning night, I have to say. It was an amazing night. It was a good night to be a co-commentator, co I can tell you. Very exciting. Um, I remember looking down thinking, PSG, with all the money they've got, uh, they've got great support, but they're playing in Ligue 1. It's not very good <laughs> in comparison to everything mm -hmm. else. Yep. And if you're Mbappe, you cannot stay there your career. You absolutely no. cannot do that. It's not on. <clears throat> and at the end of that game, I just thought, that's a club that will shoot itself in the foot consistently. And he's got to get out of there if he wants to win Champions Leagues. And he will. It's just a question of when. So as you, we kind of look at where some of the biggest challenges have been on the pitch for Chelsea this year, it you know defensively have been sound for a lot of the matches. The midfield has been able to move the ball. But when it ends up getting to the final third, uh, which is an area that you were very efficient in during your time at Chelsea, 
uh, maybe there's a, a little bit lacking. You know, are, are there things that you know you would recommend, or you think if we tried would help improve the the way that the team has been able to score, or in many cases not score when necessary? See, I I try to be one of these people who may have had my own methods. I also watch people's methods, which I like, which were my methods. And sometimes I, I own up to the fact that I don't fully understand uh, a methodology of a certain manager. I mean, I study the game intently. And, and I look at Sari's methods and I think, right, okay, surprise me now. I think I've got this now. And it does surprise me now and again, but do, doing semi-unusual things, you look like, which is the things that annoy most people, which is he doesn't change quickly enough for our, you know, we want him to change quicker when things are going wrong. And he always believes you keep on doing the right thing at his tempo, it will work. Um, if I was a manager of Chelsea now, I, I would tell you I'd play a 4-2-3-1. I think we've got the perfect players for a 4-2-3-1. I would put Canty a little bit further back beside Jorginho and let him break from there. That would allow us to play three attackers such as, you know, William Pedro and Hudson-Odoi or, you know, Hazard, whoever it is, with one striker up front. And suddenly you've got three players doing that job that you've just asked me about which is the creation. So my solution for it would be that. You know, I would. that's how I'd see a solution. Whereas you look at Chelsea's solution at the moment, it's it's limited. It's, it's getting the ball quickly to Hazard and hope he does it. And now and again, Pedro and William will do something uh, a bit special and a bit quick as well. Um, but we're not really getting enough, you know, creativity from elsewhere. So I'm, I'm often looking at it quite frustrated, like a lot of Chelsea fans saying, well, come on. But I don't know if they're all his players in exactly the style he wants them. So, from within the group that we've got just now, um, have we got enough to adapt that to become really creative in the final third? I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. Well, hey, we're creative, but creative enough to win the league again. I'm not sure that's the case. Um, will he get a chance to bring the ones he wants to that can do that at the pace he wants to at the end of the season. I don't know if he's still here, he might. Um, if we're allowed to buy any players, he might. We might not be allowed to buy any players. There's so many ifs and maybes about it. But certainly, this saying, certainly so far, um, we can see where the weaknesses is. And by the way, has anyone sent in a message to what the answer is to that second player who's played the most? This is what you're talking about. See these through balls? I'd call it the Fabregas ball, yeah? You know yeah, I mean, right? yeah. So, um, so if you don't know, has anyone, you won't get, people, unless you look up, you will not know who it is. It's ridiculous. I'll give you a clue. It's the last person you think it is. Ah, <laughs> oh, Okay. <laughs> Uh, I would not want you as a professor, Pat Nevin. Um, that's for sure. I'll finish it off with, if you listen to the media, particularly in the UK, and a, a lot of it with Chelsea, it revolves around Jorginho. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do the next thing. Yes, he is the second in the league at passing the ball forward beyond the fences after David Luiz. And above your silvers, above everybody. Um, so we've got it drummed in there that he doesn't do that. He actually does do that. He does it quite a lot. Um, it's not led to enough goals yet. It may well be when the, the right person on the end of that is there, it will lead to goals. So the answer actually may be sitting in front of you, and we just don't know it yet. And, and one of the quick follow-ups I had on, on kind of the final third, Pat, was around kind of the movement that you see. Because, 
you know, I think we all, uh, you know, went and watched, you know, kind of 2015-16 Napoli uh, to understand what Sarri's trying to achieve at Chelsea with this system. And one of the things that I noticed about those teams that were incredibly well-drilled and had a ton of belief in the system was that in the final third, there was constant movement. It was like a swarm of bees. Uh, you know, it would have been really difficult for a center back to track any of the the forward line, including Iguain or Mertens or any of these guys. I see a lot of stagnation uh, when it kind of comes to the final third uh, this season at Chelsea. Have you seen the same thing, or is there you know kind of a method to that madness? No, not. I think you make an absolutely brilliant point. Um, Eden Hazard isn't a buzzy type, zoom everywhere kind of player, is he? He's a get the ball to me and then I'll do the damage type of player. Mertens will just zoom everywhere. Pedro's a little bit like that, isn't he? He he will run. His runs are... I did a piece of analysis for Chelsea TV last week, which is one of my favourite ones I've done for quite a few years. And it's hilarious watching uh, when you actually take it apart in Pedro's game. He just gets the ball or starts running and runs in a direct line towards the goal. He doesn't do anything else. That's all he does. So if you know he's always going to do that and you're making a pass, you don't have to look anymore. You just put it there. Now, it may well be that we need to... I mean, David Luiz is beginning to find them quite a bit doing that sort of thing. So that sort of movement from him, I think, is happening. It's it's not complex movement, but it's direct and it's quick and it's constant. Uh, William, again, once again, slightly different. It's not always high energy when he hasn't get the ball. Uh, Higuain, I have to say, has... He's got the best world-class movement, maybe alongside Harry Kane of any striker in the league just now. Um, it's just that it's not as quick as it used to be. Uh, if I was playing behind him, I would. it was dreamland, absolute dreamland. <laughs> His movement is, is it's a thing of great beauty. It's art. It's just not as quick as it used to be. So he's amazing with that sort of it. And he's worked great, good as well. I don't know if this will happen. I kind of hope it will. William played with Brazil, the World Cup. Pedro's ran his socks off, but he's still got energy. Hazard played all the way in the World Cup. Those three guys might not quite have had the energy this season, but they'll have it next season. And Hudson Adoy, if here and score in Chelsea, he's back and he'll be lively again. Did well for England last night when he came on. And you think, wait a minute, if they come back with the energy levels that Sari Ball needs and does that move and can do that movement that you're talking about, as I say, the answers might be under your nose. <laughs> it just might be there. Sometimes we kind of write things off because it's not working short term. Um, as you can tell, I'm not saying Sari Ball is the answer. It's going to work. Everyone believe. I, that, I absolutely don't know that. I don't think that. I, I just wonder. And I'm, I'm one of these people different from many. He's perfectly willing to sit and watch it and see if it does for a year. If we were 10th, 11th, 12th place, I wouldn't. I'd probably feel differently, but we're not. We're right in there in the fight for the for the top four. And it's kind of, you know, it's par for the course. He's where he should be just now. Uh, I would be really keen to see what he does with the next season. One quick question, I think, before we, I know Nick wants to transition to a different point. But one thing we have seen, and maybe it's due to the level of competition we've been receiving, but in the Europa League, we've obviously performed much better than we have in the Premier League, kind of from a consistency standpoint this season. You know, where are you thinking or feeling about Chelsea's odds to potentially end up in the final and then ultimately 
win Europa League this season? Yeah, under sorry. Um, great question. Um, and you make the exact point. You definitely know your stuff there. Um, the teams we've played against have, have been miles and miles and miles away from the standard of a Premier League time, team. So we've been able to put out kind of half strength and even quarter strength squads to go and play these teams and win them. The Europa League starts now. It just starts now. This is, this is when we need to concentrate. Up until then, it's just been kind of almost bounce games. It's been generally that easy uh, for Chelsea to do it. And when they needed to go and up the gears, there was gears to go through. It starts now. And there's some good teams left in it. Um, I think we've got a really decent chance. Um, looking at, you know, the likes of Arsenal are going to be difficult, if you know, but if we get them in the final. But I don't know about every, yourselves. I had made a list out of what I would like in a perfect world in the draw for the, the next two rounds. And we got it. <laughs> exactly <laughs> the way I yes, wanted it. it. It was unbelievable, wasn't it? It was like, that, right, we want to miss them, them, New Napoli, we met Arsenal, and everything, the two, the Seville, etc. And we missed everything. And we were left exactly what we wanted. It was a thing of great beauty. So um, I expect us to be in the final. I absolutely expect us to be in the final. And at some point, there will come a game and I know there's only eight games to go in the league, but there will come a game, I think, where Sai is going to have to make a decision and he's going to have to drop the ball slightly with either the league or the Europa League. And there's no right answer to that. The only right answer is if you make the right decision. So if you maybe arrest two or three players for an important league game, we get beat, but we win the Europa League, then he probably made the right decision. But we won't know that until the end of the season. If he drops the ball with the Europa League to focus on trying to get fourth and we don't get fourth, then he's made the wrong decision in that. But you just don't know it until the end of the season. He has to basically get one or the other to make the right decision. Well, and this this point transitions perfectly into kind of our strategy and structure uh, section of this of this interview, Pat. I mean, we're kind of at a crossroads if we don't make the Champions League next year. I think that's kind of well understood by most um, here and over there. How do you think, or how prepared or not prepared do you think the club are for this possibility? There's There's been a lot of talk about the structure and, you know, do we have the right football people in place to kind of make this transition to a more uh, frugal Chelsea instead of this free spending um, kind of nation state football that Manchester City and PSG and the like are, are competing with? Yeah, to be honest, you're, you're right. The previous model where you change managers all the time and uh, everyone in Britain certainly nags and moans and complains at how dare Chelsea sack these great managers. And I only ever have one answer, is, and it's the same answer every time. Have you looked at the trophy cabinet lately? It kind of <laughs> works. <laughs> so, you know, look at who's the most successful team in recent history. You know, it's, it's Chelsea. I mean, Chelsea have been unbelievable in recent history. Um, and it's been amazing what they've done in, in, the, in British football and changed from what we were as a club. But it, and it's been done in that method. You know, it's, I would almost call it the Real Madrid method, which you change the coaches all the time. That's fine if you are loaded and you've got all the money in the world and you are the biggest spenders in the bar. We're not anymore. So that method is doomed to failure. You can't do that anymore. It won't work. So you need to find another method. Now, what that method is going to be, they clearly made a, a decision of, right, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to bring in someone who builds something slowly but surely over a number of years. Hence, Sari. Sari is the perfect fit for that 
argument of someone who brings something in, he's not complaining and wanting new multi-billion pound players all the time. He will build and adapt and work with and change the players he's got. There's not that many out there at the top level that are doing that, but he's definitely one of them that wants to do that. So the club have looked at it and decided, right, that's what we're going to try and do. doesn't mean it's going to work. <laughs> it just means that's what you're going to try and do. And that's certainly the route they're going down. Um, there is other routes. We know we don't have to kind of skirt around it. At the moment, the richest man in the UK, I believe, made a bid some time ago to buy Chelsea, um, and it didn't happen. He's just bought um, a Sky Cycling team, which is a lot of money spent, spent in that in Europe. Um, he is, I think, sniffing around again at Chelsea. So there is a possibility that that changes, that we suddenly have an incredibly wealthy guy that wants to make a, an impact. So that might change everything as well. I tend not to worry about it too much, to be fair, because I spent so many years thinking, oh my God, why did we get rid of this manager? He was brilliant. I really liked him. And then next year we win the league and I think, oh, right, I see. <laughs> okay. Uh, I tend not to worry about it as much now uh, and let it roll. We've, we've had great times. We're having a, this isn't a bad time. This is, you know, we've, we've just reached the cup final, uh, Carabao Cup final. We still might get to the cup final of a European competition. We're still trying to get in the top four in the Champions League after what is an obvious and incredible transitional period. You know, I'm sitting here thinking, right, okay, I'll watch it for a wee while. I don't see an implosion happen happening, but I'll be intrigued to see what happens from here on in the rest of the season. Who's making those decisions? Are they the right decision makers? Do they know enough about football? I'm afraid I cannot tell you because I don't know who does it. That surprises you, doesn't it? <laughs> Someone who works in the Chelsea a lot and spends a lot of time there and supports the club and is involved in the club quite a bit. I couldn't tell you who makes it, who, who is a decision maker in each of the main decisions. Uh, I've been a chief executive at a club before myself in Scotland in the Scottish Premier League. And I had a very specific structure that I knew, made sure that everyone within that uh, structure knew what their jobs were. Um, and they were, they were again, they were quite malleable, but everyone knew their job description. It's not clear at Chelsea. So to say we have or we haven't got the right people in, you're only guessing. Because nobody really knows who makes those final decisions. <laughs> well, that uh, really walks its way into the question that one of our uh, regular listeners, also a guest of ours, a gentleman by the name of Joe Tweeds. And he highlighted the fact that you do have that previous experience as a director of football. You know, if you were asked or tasked to enter into that role at Chelsea, you know, are there things from a footballing side that you would change from anywhere from philosophy to the types of players that we sign or that we target? I, I would be a real bore and say I would go in and look at the structure. Uh, adapt the structure, see what was there within the structure and see what we had in the pipeline. You know, and that means scouting. There's a whole raft of things that you would have to look at. Um, in the simplest terms, there's certain players that I would go out and buy. You know, you know Milan replaced um, uh, Higuain when Higuain came here. Well, I'd have taken the player that we that Milan took as his replacement. That's who I'd have went for. <laughs> and he's the reserve kind of um, striker for Poland at the moment, and he's really under the radar. 
that's the one I'd have gone for. You know, in these 22 years of age, and he's scoring for fun in the Serie A. So that's one I'd have gone. So, so there's players that I would do differently, but I would also have to listen to the manager and say, well, wait a minute, what do you want? What can we get for you? What can we afford? Um, it's it's it sounds like the easiest job in the world from the outside. Um, a very few times I've actually gone and talked to the club and said to people at a certain level, could you please buy this player? Um, I've done it twice. Um, and certainly the one time I thought they almost wavered and got the player asked them to buy it, but they didn't. Um, and I was, I've, to this day, I'm still gutted they never bought that player because uh, that player would have cost them exactly £11 million at the time. And uh, Virgil van Dijk's doing quite well at the moment, isn't he? Yes. Oh, that's uh, that's soul crushing <laughs> right there, on. Pat. Come on, Pat. <laughs> it was at Celtic, and I obviously being Scottish and he watched a lot of Scottish football, so I said, "Look, please just look, eleven million for Chelsea Football Club. It's buttons, really. Just just get him. He's brilliant." And of course, the problem is it's Scotland, and the standard isn't as high. And people, a couple of people had said to me, "You know, he makes mistakes," and I said, "Yes, he's bored." It's too easy for them. I watched them <laughs> at the level. And somebody else had said, well, you know, it's a Scottish league. It's awful. The standard's not good enough. And I said, yes, I have watched him play against Barcelona and all those teams. This guy is unbelievable. He's by miles going to be the best. Um, and it didn't take an I'm going to, I'm going to own up to this as well now. I'll, and Chelsea fans, close your ears if you don't want to hear this, but I'll tell you anyway. Um, um, David Moyes was a friend of mine. Um, we grew up together at Celtic in Scotland. And I did mention to Moise when he went into Manchester United, I said to him, Chelsea, I'm going to take that guy Van Dyke. You should just grab him now, mate. And they didn't. I wonder if Manchester United and David Moyes would have been different had he gone for Van Dyke then. It would have been interesting. But anyway, I've, I, that's to sidetrack it. You know, there are certain players you think, yeah. And when I was chief executive, I did take a couple of players and gave them to the manager and said, right, I've bought those two players for you. Use them or don't use them. I think they're really, really good, um, but I'll never, I'll, I won't do that again. After that, I'll just talk to you um, because it, you have to give respect to the manager and his position. So you mentioned that there were two players that you've gone to Chelsea to tell them to buy. You've given us one. What was the other player that you recommended? I deliberately didn't mention it because I'm kind of hoping it still might happen. So I'll keep that one quiet. Okay. 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 All right. Wonderful. Fair. Very fair. All right. So another question from uh, Jacobson. 2442. Um, so, Pat, where where do you see uh, Chelsea in two years? Who's our star player? Who's our captain? Who's our coach? And are we are we qualifying for Champions League? Right. Uh, brilliant question because it's utterly and completely unanswerable. Right? Um, <laughs> you, ask, you ask that about any club, and it's a hard art question. You ask that about Chelsea Football Club. Oh, come on, that's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> the coach thing's hard. I mean, it could be sorry, it could be anyone else. It, could be Ancelotti again. Who knows? Um, as I've said often on the television and radio in the UK, they say, that's terrible, that Chelsea. You know, they've got really a good manager. And I just keep on saying the same thing. Have a look at the other managers. You know, the next one is usually, the next cab off the ranks usually quite good, you know. And whoever, if Sarri stays, he may, he'll stay because he's doing a good job. If Sarri leaves, we'll get another really good coach in. There's quite a lot of them around. Um Somewhere in the future, not two years, somewhere in the future, there's, there are names like Lampard, you know, there's a name that doesn't get mentioned at the moment that I would love one day to see as Chelsea's manager, Steve Clark. Um, 
have, having watched the internal workings of football clubs and how people work with people, um, people have no idea how good that guy is. <laughs> he's unbelievable. So he's up in Scotland at the moment, but he's been obviously he was a, had you know, ten years with Chelsea. He was player of the year for us as well. He's worked under Josie, he's worked under Rude, he's worked under Bobby Robson, he's worked under Kennedy Gleish. He's been manager in his own right, and I've, I've watched him, and he's, he's spectacularly good. Um, but if I had to guess maybe five years, if I can change the question, uh, I'd go out and eliminate it with John Terry. I think John Terry would be, of the new ones coming through, your Gerrards, your Lampards, and all the young ones coming through, I would say John Terry will be the best of the bunch. And I hope it's at Chelsea. And if he is the best of the bunch, it damn well will be at Chelsea. Wow. Well, that's a that's a mic drop moment. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so if you know John and spend time with John and looked at what he does, um, I've worked with a lot of managers over the years and I've, I've employed managers. I've had to sack them. I've worked under them. And I look at what he's got as a a skill set, and I don't think anyone's close to him. At the moment. Um, Frank would be great, I'm sure, and he's doing a pretty good job with Derby as well, along with Jody Morris, and um, I would love to see him as Chelsea manager one day. But if you were, if I, if I, you gave me $100 to bet who's going to be the most successful in 20 years' time, my money would be straight on JT. That is brilliant to hear. You know, I think you mentioned one thing, which you know, Chelsea – supporters have a you know a very you know under good you know good understanding at least from the perspective of a fan of watching managers get you know sacked or or sent away and you mentioned that you've obviously had to do that in your role and you know let managers go you know how did how do you kind of view making the determination like what are the like most important factors that you would kind of take into consideration before you know getting down that road or making kind of the final the final curtain call on someone well, to be fair, I, I was the chief exec at the time. Um, for those who don't know, I was player and chief exec at the same time, which I think is the only time it's ever been done in top-level football. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't recommend it because <laughs> it's quite stressful. Um, but with the manager, um, I, I put him in place and I knew he was a good manager and I, I knew he was a good coach. Um, but everyone's got positives and negatives to their personalities, to their characters, and to their abilities. And sometimes it takes a number of years for the the weakness to, you know, you know, outpower the strengths that you had. And uh, I had the entire board trying to sack the manager for a year, the entire board, and I kept him on for an extra entire year because he was doing a good enough job. He was hard to work with, but he was doing a good enough job. But when the time came for him to be sacked, um, it was still my job. I still had to do it. And I'm kind of a nice guy. I, it's a hard thing for me to do. So what I did was the entire process, I just was absolutely and brutally honest with him. Just told him why. And I said, and as if, I said, if you're angry, you can be angry, mate, but this is why I've stuck by with for an extra year. Um, the board find it too difficult to work with you. All these, all these sorts of things. Um, I'll also get the best deal that I possibly can get for you, you know, because obviously there's a, a deal to be made when you're leaving. Um, and just absolutely upfront and honest. In the meantime, you're also, you've got your feelers out. You must have a list of at least three, four, five who you're confident you can probably get in as re- replacement. You, you cannot start that process without having an idea. It's not, it's nothing other than being prepared and doing the best thing for your company. So, 
in the end, when I did it the first time, that manager went on to manage in the Premier League in, in England. So I couldn't have been a bad judge because I, t- <laughs> I took him on as that. But his time, had, he'd run his course there. But you made sure that when he left, there was either A, something that could structurally run in its place in the meantime, while you fixed the, the, the next thing that was coming in. And you also had your one, two, three, four, and five. You know, number five will come. You know you'll get them. Number four will almost certainly come. Number three, you might get them. Number two is a kind of slightly pipe dream. And number one's probably, back then, was hope I can get Mourinho, you know? <laughs> you're not going to get that. Yeah, but to be honest, actually, to be fair, I got my number one who, who came in, the one that I actually wanted. And it was just a personal thing. We got on very, very well. So get all those things. You have to get all your ducks lined up in a row. Um, And that's a massively important thing. If you don't get it at all lined up, it's just madness. That just shows that you are knee-jerk reacting to fans, social media, pressure from above. You need to be strong in your own beliefs. And also, what a lot of teams or clubs do, I'm not saying Chelsea do, but a lot of clubs do this, the managers, get, managers are getting stick. The players are getting stick. The minute people start turning on the board, the board sack the manager. And that's that's weak management. That's very weak management. You shouldn't. You should wait to the time you think is right to do the th- things. So uh, the answer to that question is simply, you do what you believe in. That's why you're in the job. All right, Chelsea fans. Well, we could not contain Pat to a single episode now mr nevin was phenomenal and we just had to keep the conversation rolling so stay tuned for part two coming out tomorrow that's going to be wednesday of this week the 27th and if you're listening in the future time it's already available on your feed so you enjoy it then but until then chelsea fans keep the blue flag flying high